Hey, welcome back to the Upstream podcast. I'm here today with Heather Leeson and Monica Granados. And we're going to talk about how open interacts with the real world and particularly the parts of the real world that are challenged uh, in, in the world we live in right now in climate and in international uh, humanitarian work. So uh, as guest today, uh, Monica Granados is the uh, head of, is the, sorry, the assistant director of open climate work at Creative Commons. And Heather Leeson is the digital innovation lead at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. And we're getting, instead of that mouthful, we're just going to say IFRC for the rest of, uh, for the rest of the recording. But we're really excited to have both of you here. I've known both of you on and off for a while and excited to get you both in the same place. You know, one of the themes of the podcast is how open is everywhere. And you, know, Monica, before we came on, you were t talking about how you volunteer in search and rescue work and data and mapping is one of those things that has pervaded, right? Like you can't do good search and rescue work, I suppose, in the modern day without, uh, without good mapping work. And that, and Heather, you and I first met uh, a long time ago now, uh, doing, uh, coming across each other in the humanitarian open street map community, which does some really amazing uh, work around open source mapping through OpenStreetMap in the name of, of humanitarian work. So what actually, you know, why don't we start there then? Heather, tell us a little bit about the IFRC and how that, because I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with their local Red Cross, uh, but may not be familiar with IFRC <laughs> or with what you do at the Solferino Academy. Sure. Um, thanks, Lewis, and I'm glad to be here with you and Monica and the Titleist audience. Um, the International Federation of Red Cross Red Crescent Societies is a network, a global federated network of 192 national societies with 17 million volunteers or 16.5 volunteers. We're going to be data accurate this week um, and half a million staff. So we're in every community around the world. And I specifically work in Solferino Academy as part of the IFRC. And we work with those 190 nationalities national societies, specifically on innovation, transformation, and leadership. So we run a couple of programs around that, whether it be um, pilots like the data playbook I did, or um, like the Global Innovation Summit that we're working on right now with young people. Oh, we will, I'll definitely try to make sure to find mm -hmm. out more about that Global Innovation Summit. That distributed network uh, also, mm -hmm. I think is going to sound familiar to anyone who's worked in open source. And it's certainly part of the Creative Commons uh, strategy as well, right? I mean, Monica, that's been, cre Creative Commons is also a network, right? Yeah, so we, we, I'm part of the headquarters, but we also have a, a global network of country chapters that we interface in or with, um, and that allows us to have a, a, a much bigger reach and a much bigger impact, but also allow um, us to hear from voices from all over the world and uh, how open is contextualized in those specific countries or regions um, to, to do open the, the right way in uh, in that context. Well, tell me a little bit more. I mean, you're, t you know, I think a lot of uh, folks listening to this think of Creative Commons for what it's, of course, best known for, which is the licenses. So it may be a little bit surprising for folks to hear that CC is doing an open climate initiative. Talk a little bit more about that. 
Yeah. So, you know, at, at the heart of the licenses is this idea that we wanted to make it easier to share or to share better. Better sharing is part of our uh, strategic plan. And, you know, when we're talking about how better sharing can help the world make a better place, we really frame it under this idea that if we're going to solve the world's greatest problems, the knowledge about them needs to be open. The licenses are a way to enable that, to make it easier to share better. Uh, but we wanted to focus on a specific problem and what bigger problem than climate change that is currently facing humanity, that is uh, has the potential to affect every person on the planet in every dimension. And we recognize that in order for us to be able to solve a problem like climate change, are the knowledge that is being generated in institutions and in the academy and in other places where we're creating knowledge, that knowledge has to be accessible. It has to be open, meaning that if someone wants to go and read about that research or those research outputs, they can do that, that they won't encounter barriers like a paywall. So the Open Climate Campaign is working towards making the open sharing of research around climate change the norm in, in climate science. And so we see it really as an extension of, um, you know, kind of this macrocosm of using the, the licenses, but now we're tackling a specific problem, in this case, climate change. That's really, that, that better sharing that you were talking about really resonates with me. And I think, Heather, you know, knowing some of the stuff that you've done in the past couple of years, uh, you uh, were involved a little bit in a data playbook uh, last year, and uh, you published what I think is really great, a, a sort of tactical guide to helping organizations bridge the technical and social impact via via open, right? And it sounds like uh, it sounds like that's right up the the same alley, right? That you two are sort of working in the same, I mean, same kind of general direction, right? I think so, and I think I really like what Monica had to say about sharing and and knowledge belongs to everyone. And um, when you think about humanitarian work, we're trying to help people at some of the most difficult times in their lives. So first aid is an open standard, right? If you think about it, there's mm -hmm. standards around yeah. first aid. Um, in the, in the humanitarian space, we have standards as well in terms of um, open data and some open source standards. But I have to say that Creative Commons and licenses, those helped us be able to use open in our organizations when, when we were writing the global internet, the international strategy for our organization, the digital transformation mm -hmm. strategy, I cited OSI, I cited open source initiative, I cited Creative Commons licenses, and I actually had a, a list of all the instances and products and services that already use MIT or other licenses in our organization, and also um, use the argument of the licenses are already being used in our organization, the methodology are there. In fact, it really aligns with our values and our principles, and that sharing means that we can do our work better. And the data playbook that I did, um, which was six years of going from an idea to a beta to a V1 and piloted around the world. And I just trained up a new product manager. So she's now in charge of that. But that was all a sharing document of what's the best training that people can do around the world in terms of data literacy. Everything from what is data 
to what is data culture, to how to collect it, to how to protect it, and what is emerging tech and data science. And that's all with a Creative Commons license. Um, and we put that out in the world. And so many other organizations are using it. And again, it's about why do we share things? Well, we share it because it's a best practice that we know that other people might need it. And, um, and Creative Commons gives us a lever to be able to share that and follow the same principles. And so I told um, Ryan Merkley, I think, when he was when mm -hmm. he was at Creative Commons yeah. about it. But I do, uh, I don't think I told your latest uh, uh, executive director, but I do feel that um, those examples help us to be able to kind of demonstrate why we need to share and how you can already have open in your organization. And so I'm glad for that. But you do need the political levers. And I think of licenses as political levers, right? You have a strategy document or what have you um, that can have open listed in it. And so our digital transformation strategy has open listed in it and has those models in it. But it goes from principles to political levers to products and services and assets to show how open happens. And if you use those three things in a triangle, that's how you, I think, bring open a little bit more into the harder organizations, especially when you're working on climate. I could go on about open data, but I'm going to... I'll, I'll wait for the next question. I, I, well, I do want to talk a little bit more about, um, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about this notion of a political lever and the license mm -hmm. as a, is it because, what makes it effective in that way? Is it, is it because it's used externally and so that gives it some credibility or is it is it practical impact? Like, tell me more about that. Well, I mean, humanitarian, and if you know about the sphere, um, sphere guidelines, there are guidelines that, that, that are built for humanitarian work and, it, and their standards, right? They are very much interested in the institutional standards and the legal standards in order to protect and to do the work. So they speak standards, right? And I'm like, oh, I can speak standards to you too. Standards are licenses. Here's some examples of licenses. And so the legal department was very happy mm. that there was extensive documentation on this is how the license works. And so um, two years ago, I was doing a pilot and we decided to use MIT license because that's what everybody else is using. I'm like, here's all the documentation. Here's how it exists. And so those standards themselves, by, by talking about it, it's important because we also work in um, what I mean by political levers. We are um, the Red Cross, Red Crescent, National Societies are auxiliaries of governments. Um, we have international disaster law. We're an international organization, but we still need to be able to abide by some common standards to be able to do our work. In addition to that, we have things like resolutions, pledges, how we give money, how we fundraise. All of these things are all legal documents and they have to be written in a way, policies and policies and everything. So by, by using the same terminology, you can, and you, I, it took me, I actually had people teach me this because I didn't come from a humanitarian organization. I came from startups and tech and research and I, I wasn't familiar with the political levers, but when I, once, I start, once I understood that, hey, I understand standards. Okay, let's play, right? You just have to figure out where the angle is. And, and you have to learn to speak their language. So I rarely, um, some of the first meetups that I ran, I didn't start talking with open. I'm like, well, tell me how you do your work and how do you share and collaborate? So you start there, right? And then you go deeper. Yeah, yeah I'm, well, I'm sure starting there and then going deeper, Monica, I mean, at some level, that's sort of the thesis of the open climate work, right? Is like, mm -hmm. how are you connecting with people? Talk a little bit more about I, I mean, I know it's still early. It's like a four-year plan that you all are working on, right? And you're more or less in year one. 
Yeah, we're just about to complete year one. So we launched in uh, July, August of 2022. So we're about to hit year one. Um, I, a lot of the things that Heather just said really, really resonate uh, with the work that we're that we're trying to do. Um, one of the things, one of the major things that the Open Climate Campaign is trying to do is to create policies with national governments, environmental organizations, and funders. And this idea of the lever or like a policy cover is such an integral part of having success in creating a policy with a, with a national government or a funder. Um, first of all, because you, you know, you want to, you want to point to those examples, you know, I'll, I will take Heather, that example, and I will take it to other organizations and say, look, it worked really well at IR, our, I, FRC. And I think it could work really well for you. You know, we have like, we have case studies, we have precedents for, for it to work well. But also, you know, we can hinge it on this existing policy that your government has or that your organization has, so that they're aligned in a way to meet the goals of your organization, but also further open. And so we've done some work to look at some national governments and funders that we would like to work with, did investigations on like what kind of policies exist, what what work have they done in the past in open, so that we're ready to pull in that information, work around that policy cover to further open with new policies on, uh, on open access. So we want to integrate policies um, that uh, re that require that if you uh, you know take money from a, a national government through as a grantee or a funder or environmental organization that you have to publish open. And now there's many pathways to do that, and that's part of the work that we're doing with these target groups is figuring out what's the best pathway for that particular organization where the endpoint is still that you know we're we don't have a barrier to access that information, that there's text and data mining rights and there's reuse rights and that we're applying Creative Commons licenses so that, you know, there is there it, it enables reuse and better sharing of that mm -hmm. material. But most plainly, often the way I see it is that it puts a label on this uh, this product that says, take me and share me. And I don't have to go asking somebody and I don't have to go worry about whether someone's going to come after me because I shared it. Like it says, please use me, you know, like the opposite of, you know, don't step on the grass. It's like those signs you know, would say, please, you know, step on this grass, come play on this grass, come play um, and use me. Well, so let's, I mean, if we can take a turn and make that a little, I mean, I, I think it's funny as a skeptical lawyer, I'm always sort of, I'm always looking for reasons why people glom onto the licenses as much as they do. Cause part of me is like, it's just, look, it's just a few paragraphs of stuff. But I, I love what you were both saying there because that makes it, it's a good reminder for me at least uh, of like, Oh, right. These things are, they have context and power well outside of, of that, of those few paragraphs of text. Right. Uh, so that's really, let's make it a little more concrete. I mean, Monica, I know in a space as big as climate, there's a lot of different kinds of data, types of data. Are, can you give an example for folks of like what kinds of, you know, a little more specific beyond just climate data, like what kinds of stuff is being shared or you hope will be shared? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because when you talk about like climate science or like climate research, that could span so many like broad scientific disciplines. I mean, that's what's that's the power of climate change too, right? That like that it, people in the humanities and soil, social sciences, and then like in the natural sciences and physics and chemistry and all of these um, um, disciplines, they are they're studying climate change. Um, so. At the Open Climate Campaign, we're specifically looking at the data that is associated with a, a publication. So, you know, if you're going out and you're measuring the decline in uh, freshwater mussels um, in a stream because of rising temperatures, the data for, you know, how many mussels you found in quadrant A versus quadrant B, that data should be open along with your publication. We're now starting a new project uh, with uh, Taylor Campbell, who has come on board uh, on Creative Commons team. And now we're exploring, okay, what about data that is not associated with, with publications? A lot of that monitoring data, those really big, you know, some meteorological data sets, modeling, model data sets that are collected really around like atmospheric sciences. Those are really, really big data sets. They're very um, valuable scientifically. And how do we make it easier to share that data? Um, because there is often, there's, there's standards within certain disciplines, but like there, um, there can be a difference between how data is shared among scientists and how the data that, the data format or metadata that's needed for a practitioner to use. So we're delving into some of these larger data sets um, as sort of a, a side project uh, around the open climate work that we're doing in, in uh, at Creative Commons. Oh, that's super um, interesting. Cause yeah, those big data sets are very challenging, open to some yeah. extent relies on things being cheap and easy. <laughs> and those big mm -hmm. data sets are anything but cheap and easy. So that's really, that that's that's really interesting. Maybe maybe I'll have you or somebody on the team back to talk with uh, some data nerds. I mean, Heather, what kinds of stuff? Uh, oh, go ahead. You were going to say something. Else? Yeah, I was just going to. I just wanted to build on Monica's point around how essential it is to have data to do our work. I think we overlap there, and open data to do our work. In my organization, um, you know, climate the climate emergency is an everyday emergency. Canada is on fire right now in Alberta. That's a climate emergency, mm -hmm. sorry, just to, just to bring it right down to. There's different kinds of data that we need. We need operational data. We need meteorolo meteorological. We need everything that you possibly can imagine to be able to have people make decisions and make plans. Then we need reporting data and we need strategic data. So we need every layer of data to be able to do our work. And in the reality of our work is, is that we don't work as one institution either. We work within the sector, we work with governments, we work with communities, we work with civil society and other organizations. So they need to share data. So in the last few years, there's been a, quite a big movement in the, in the humanitarian space to have better, of, of course, be focused on data protection, responsible data use, but have data sharing agreements in place. And so we have standards around data mm -hmm. sharing agreements so that we can actually open up data as soon as possible so that we can share it across 
um, the different institutions for large-scale emergencies. During COVID, it was quite astounding how much more data sharing moved forward because it was a global emergency, a global pandemic. When it's a localized domestic emergency um, that's a natural disaster, which my some of my colleagues say, no, no disaster is natural, it's climate-oriented. That's how they say right now. Um, there are organizations within our kind of network who are working with scientists to be able to kind of inform the kind of long-term planning and the futures and foresights around, around using data, but also the methodologies to be able to show how data, the data will tell us what will happen in the future because we need to be a little bit more prepared. As a preparedness organization, this means working with organizations like the United Nations um, Center for Human, uh, Center uh, for Humanitarian Data. They've actually created a whole protocol and standard on how people share data, and they have a whole data set, uh, a data bank exchange that where we submit data um, that's gets vetted and that is used across humanitarian. And that 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 thing started um, in 2010, and so now it's a standard. At the time, it wasn't a standard. So whether it just be geospatial data, like stuff that Humanitarian OpenStreetMap does or any other geo organization or a satellite company, all the way down to population data, to you know, uh, other kinds of layers of emergency data or admin boundaries or what have you. So this idea of being able to have the most um, current layers of data to be able to inform our work especially with the climate emergency means that we need to partner a little bit better and share. And so that conversation around, as much as I talked about licenses earlier, there was three steps happening around open. There was, there was the data, the licenses, and then the products and services, right? Go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to say that the licenses are only part of, well, first I was going to say, yeah, right there. Well, and that's why sometimes I say that I'm a little bit of a skeptic, even though I've written some of these licenses, I, I'm still sometimes a little bit of a skeptic, because if you don't have the other bits and pieces, boy, I have so many thoughts about what you were just saying, Heather. I mean, one of them is simply, look, I grew up in hurricane country, and now I live in, I struggle to call it drought country, because drought implies that it's a temporary condition that's going to go away, when in fact, no. you know, drought is our new normal, the, the the really probably better term is desertification, right? That the, the California is transitioning from being a Mediterranean climate to being a, a more uh, desert-like climate, uh, lower precipitation, though, as we're seeing this year, also increased flooding. Certainly uh, Red Cross out here has been very busy with, uh, with all the flooding issues, uh, mm -hmm. which thankfully, hopefully means fewer fires this year, but is not gonna, you know, I think there are some people who very badly want it to be and this gets back to the data question, of course, right? There's some people who keep asking, oh, does this mean the drought is over? And it's like, well, that means this year <laughs> we are not in a drought condition, but that doesn't tell us much. You know, one year's worth of rainfall without the data doesn't tell us much about how we need to plan for next year and the, and the next decade and the next hundred years, right? Um, so, wow, all that packed together is a very powerful... Uh, uh, a lot, a lot to mull on there, right? So I would say that the Anticipation Hub is a network of organizations who are actually talking and working specifically on what you just said, uh, Lewis. They're working with NASA. They're working with many, many organizations, whether they be humanitarian, development, governmental, or business, to be able to say that we need to anticipate these emergencies and prepare for them. That we need to plan for them as an 
as a network, we can't count on it as one institution. The days of institutions are tackling climate change without doing it as a network um, is, is ridiculous. And so they, they're taking a network-centric approach and they're very big advocates of open and open methods. And I think that this is a, this, this, this network approach, whether it be at a, a country level or as a global level, which is what this organization does, to me, that's the way to go. And so with Creative Commons and what you're working on right now, I think that that's, it's, it's just in line with that kind of policy and strategy level that needs to happen. And I, I would encourage that if you haven't met them, I'm happy to do some introductions, but I do feel like there's, there's quite a few, you're, you'll, if you start going to the list of who's involved, um, I think it's only going to grow. I wanted to, I, this is super interesting and I, I bet Monica's interested. I know I certainly am. Um, you know, I think for both of you, one of the tensions that I feel when I'm talking about this and you sort of hinted at it, Heather, you were talking both about how open enables um, networks of organizations to move quickly, right? Because the, because mm -hmm. the information disseminates more quickly, allowing uh, hopefully better, <laughs> at least faster, uh, decision making, but you also spoke about how, in at least some cases, information is vetted before it's released, and I feel like there's at least a little bit of tension. And I don't know if Monica, you've seen some of this as well between uh, the desire for the the understandable and often very reasonable desire for correctness versus yeah. you know the open open software at least. Um, mm -hmm desire to move quickly, right? The idea in part is that if we get it out there more quickly, and then there are folks, certainly in my experience, some climate folks for, again, for good reason, they really want it to be correct when they publish it. Uh, whereas open as, at least as I've participated in it is about iteration and like, well, if the first one's 90%, the next one will be 95 mm -hmm. And there are climate scientists who I've spoken to who are like, well, if the first one is 90%, we're going to get crucified in the press and in the media. And the, and that remaining 10% is going to be used to discredit the entire 90%. Mm -hmm. How do you, how have you, have you two come yeah. across this tension? How do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Uh, I was actually just having a, a conversation just yesterday with um, people from, from PLOS and Earth Archive, because we were talking about preprints in, in climate science. Mm -hmm. And preprints are a version of a, a manuscript that has not gone out for, for peer review yet. But, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I've formatted my manuscript. I'm ready to disseminate some, some results. Um, and there is some hesitancy in, in releasing that information and the data associated with with that that manuscript because it hasn't been hasn't been sort of vetted through through peer review um, but on the flip side you know there's been many cases where in emergencies and Heather you probably have some some uh, examples of this uh, during uh, the uh, Zika outbreak during COVID how important it was to have access to preprints because then policy uh, and policy maker, policy and decision makers could use that sort of state of the art, just released information to make policy decisions and inform those decisions with the latest science. Instead of waiting the like 12 months that it takes on average to have a publication go through the peer review process. And I think those timelines are getting longer and longer as there's more and more demand for the same number of reviewers that we have in the system. So, you know, 
you can think about that, I think, in the same way for the climate crisis. You know, we're, we're working on similar scales. We're, we're working at similar levels of urgency. And if decision makers are going in and negotiating an agreement or a commitment, they need to have the latest information, not five, not five uh, year old data, because it could be very different, you know, whether it's like, you know, the uh, flood patterns or precipitation or even temperature changes, right? A five, five years, that's a, that, that can be a really different data set. So um, I think that there's a need to balance the, that, that urgency, I think, with also the, the caution. I, I really do see the concern of climate scientists because of climate denialism and uh, that being weaponized. Uh, but I think mm -hmm. that regardless of the system that we put in, there's always going to be those um, there's always going to be that that sort of like dissenting opinion or the deniers, uh, whether that goes through a peer review process or not. Um, there's been many cases where, you know, articles have been retracted that have gone through a peer review process or where like data has been vetted. So, um, yeah, I think finding that balance can be difficult. I think it is challenging for climate scientists to, to, to do that, but we need that, that information to make, to make decisions and noting that I think there's always going to be uh, climate denial, and we just need to protect the scientists then to be able to to be able to do their work without worrying about the you know um, uh, misinformation being or or being weaponized for misinformation. Yeah, this idea yeah. of having verified data to be able to do your work is essential for humanitarians. I mean, I think it's essential for everybody, mm -hmm. but for humanitarians, it can save lives. We we have. Uh, stickers and t-shirts all around in the kind of in the tech network and the Red Cross Red Crescent that says information saves lives and I also think that verification saves lives right um, and having the most accurate data we had uh, I had a workshop that I did in um, the continent of Africa I'm not going to name the country because of stuff um, I had a workshop and uh, one of the one of the more operational people said the data that I received was from 1940 something or other and I needed to make an emergency decision and I needed the most up-to-date data. And we actually in the network, um, and that was from the country, not necessarily from the Red Cross or Red Crescent that they got that data from, but it was from the country, the data that was published. And what he wanted was the most up-to-date data so that he could make a plan to for migration, right? So he could mm -hmm. make a plan. And in the end, um, it was a combination of what was on the humanitarian data exchange, what was an open street map? Uh, what the there's a whole group called the Information Management Working Group, and there was there were people who have kind of open data and data skills within the network of the Red Cross, Red Crescent, and the Cross Humanitarian, and they were able to verify information and give it to him, right? And so this idea that you're not just doing it through your institution, you're doing the open sharing piece of it, but without that verification step, you could cause grievous harm. You could put it. You could put the earthquake in the wrong zone right mm -hmm. you could you could um you know put the wrong population layer on right you could put the town in the wrong place like there's every every possible thing can happen with that but this idea of misinformation and disinformation um 
this is something that is very concerning for us as well, right? So if we release something, will we cause harm? That's the first question we ask, right? If we release a set of data, and so there's a lot of rigor behind that about what we can share. And if it is what we think might have some personal identifying information, we can't share mm -hmm. it, right? So even if we say it's like a, a set of population in a certain district, well, what if it's a, what if it's a at-risk community? What if it's a vulnerable community that all of a sudden now that data gets used for something else? So we have to, everyone's quite well trained on it, but we're asking all the time, how will that data be used? Who will use it? Mm -hmm. And we can't trust just our own instincts. And I love the fact that a climate scientist who's thinking about publishing their paper has the same conundrum that we have. We did read a lot of the papers that were published or early releases during COVID. Um, many of us were looking at those and we were thankful that we were able to see those pre-releases. Um, because that was helpful for us as we were thinking about what should we do with our data sets and our decision making. I mean, it sounds like maybe one and, you know, and Heather, I know this is a, an area you have a lot of thoughts on, but Monica, I'm curious your thoughts as well. It sounds like one of the ways in which you can mitigate the risk is uh, both of, of open data, but also of, as you say, very old 1940s kind of data sets is use open to accelerate fixing things, right? Instead of instead of mitigating the concerns by saying, well, we're not going to release it at all, it's use open to mitigate the concerns by fixing things quickly, right? I mean, that's how I first became, I mean, like I said, I grew up in hurricane country. And so I first became aware of humanitarian open street map from doing uh, from helping out a tiny little bit with some mapping, some post-hurricane mapping in, in the Caribbean. And I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things that you, so, I mean, you obviously have experience there. I'm sure there are newer examples of quick response via data, not just in the mapping community. And I'd be curious to hear about that. But you also talked about uh, in this piece you published recently, using open to as as a almost a community building technique or bridge building technique between tech communities and humanitarian communities right like humanitarian open street map wouldn't exist without certain tooling having been built mm -hmm. i'm sure there are many other examples like that talk a little bit about this this bridge building impact of open i think there's many of us who um, worked in tech companies or volunteered with open products or services in some way that have landed ourselves thinking about well, how much more change can we have in the world. Um, when I first arrived at the Red Cross, Red Crescent, there were, um, I just asked around and found out who other open allies are, right? And I think you really need to know um, what's already there, like as a baseline, what's already being done. And then being able to call your friends and family in the open source world, right? So I, I come as a volunteer um, and um, within the OpenStreetMap community. And, you know, there's many people within the Red Cross, Red Crescent that have been heavily involved in OpenStreetMap. So that's good news, right? So that's a good, good example that we were able to use about other tech companies or other products and services that are open. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, we are not, a, and I love, I love how our secretary general says this. We are not a tech company, Heather. We are, we are a humanitarian organization, right? And so we count on our partners in universities and in tech companies and civil society and partners who are building things to be able to use that for our work. 
our work is to be effective and to serve vulnerable communities. And so if we don't use the best fit or the things that can actually match our values, then it's not going very well in terms of it. And so the narrative around what's going to fit in our values, what, what's already being used and been, and been tried and true, it worked really well to bring partners into those conversations. And so for my time, we actually put it in our digital transformation strategy that open source is one method and open data is one method in order to be able to deliver humanitarian response. And so to have it in your official strategy is like a huge win. And there's a whole stack of us that worked very hard with our partners and with the researchers and used every example we possibly could to do that. So there are the, the, the narratives around hospitals or what have you, all of that, all of that stuff was being shared inside um, my organization. And I know for a fact that it, it goes a little bit wider because the UN has their roadmap to digital and they have talked to many organizations and open source and open data is part of that roadmap to digital. They feel that we need to have digital public goods and those digital public goods should be open source and open data because we should have access to the best talent and skills to be able to do the change in the world that we want to have and the impact we have in the world. So to see it in the strategies and to see it implemented as part of it and to not have to sit in an IT department and debate enterprise versus open source, which I have sat in that and done mm -hmm. that. Um, and that conversation, well, there's no, there's no clear winner here. That's not, a, like, I mean, I have a clear winner in my heart, but no one's going to win that discussion. What's more important <clears throat> is that the, the opportunity to go to those tech events, get the narrative, make friends, and then have them come and speak and push them into meetings and do that. That bridge building requires kind of a network center approach in terms of your networking, but also just taking the skills and talent and the talking points and then shaping them inside. And so this whole socialization process is no new story because if you look at inner source and you read all the stuff from the inner source community, if you read all the stuff about the early days of open source, um, you know, it's just so similar to me. And so when I go in and I walked, walked in and I run into this conversation, I'm like, oh, this is so familiar. Let's just change the words. Right. We're right. just talking about the same thing. Let's just change the word. I'll just drop the word open. Let's talk about how we can do better as our work. Right. Yeah. I mean, Monica, you've, you've been part of government and I'm sure you're working. I know, you know, for example, NASA data, U.S. Geological Service Service data, at least in the U.S.'s mm -hmm. response to climate change, is often very important. Uh, does that does what Heather's saying resonate with you? Absolutely. That like um, you know, often like the the open community or open scholarship community, you know, it has ideas that need to be enabled by technology, and that is something we take really to heart at the Open Climate Campaign because of one of our major goals or objectives is to do advocacy around the need to, to make climate data and climate information open. But we're not do, doing it at Creative Commons. We recognize that there's a lot of people that are doing it really well, and we want to connect them with the people who are doing it really well. And the foundation for a lot of that work is technology. And I have a, um, you know, a concrete example from previous work that I've done. Um, with this, this idea of like, how do we enable verification of, of like, you know, um, up-to-date results. So um, I helped start an organization called Pre-Review that reviews preprints. It's like, a, it's a, an organization that, that, that facilitates that, but we needed the tech to, to, to make that happen. Um, we, we, could, we needed a platform 
to uh, pull in the preprints to then enable people to do that verification that we were just talking about so that people could then feel like, oh, this information, this sort of new new cutting edge information has been verified, but we, we needed the tech, we needed the, um, the, that expertise to, to come in to, to help to enable this idea that we had for helping verify or review preprints. So um, yeah, that really resonates with us well, the, like, the, the connection of the two and like, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. A lot of the infrastructure that's needed to enable open both on the information and on the data side is there. We just need to make better connections. And I think probably really importantly is that we need support for it as well. That um, I've seen a lot of this happen in the space where, you know, we you get money to build that infrastructure or to build that tech, and then there's no support for it. And I think there should be a recognition that these things that we are building are for the public good to verify data, to verify information, and how do we ensure that there's still there's support for in, for infrastructure for tech that often you know it costs money to to maintain right right well i would say you know i think one of the things uh that some sometimes there's i i feel like when i'm interacting with data stuff it feels sometimes a little uh not quite as sophisticated some of the discussions feel well heather to you know to your point you were saying that uh sometimes this feels in a very good way, like early open source. And sometimes to me, it feels maybe I'm a glass half empty kind of person, but sometimes it feels like in a very bad way, like early open source, like, oh, we've had this discussion so many times. So one, I'm glad that we have optimists like you around to complement my pessimism. But I think uh, it's been great talking to you because this makes me much more optimistic. Piles of links, both that we'll share on the show notes and that you all have shared with me about like, oh, actually, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. I want to end with, I try to end most shows with this. What makes you excited? What makes you optimistic about where open is going, either in your space or more generally? Like what, 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 when you roll out of bed in the morning, what are you excited to go, to go tackle? Oh, I mean, every day, I'm so grateful that this is a job that I, that I get to do that one day I saw the contrast between this enclosed way that we were doing knowledge production and that there was an alternate way and and that you know I have a career in enabling us to move towards uh, open and I think I just see like a cultural shift in, in in knowledge and data production towards open in a way that I've that I haven't seen before seen before you know I've been in this space you know starting from graduate school you know a little over 10 years now and seeing you know editorial boards quit over you know uh, APC fees the the rise of open access the rise of pre-printing the you know the rise of data deposit repositories I, I see a shift this momentum and uh, discourse that I haven't seen before. And it's just really exciting to see the pendulum swing. Yeah, that's awesome. Heather, what do you want to add? Well, you know, I always think about open and open source is the way we collaborate and we connect as a world. And I work for this large organization in this large industry where we're going to have impact and where we overlap with Monica around climate action is that we can make that change and we should and we must be accountable for it. 
And so by open being a way for us to be able to collaborate as networks and as organizations to have that impact on whatever the impact you're having, whether it be um, you were talking about water and water shortages or whether it be climate data or whether it be humanitarian response, we all have the same mission there. What makes me very excited is that, um, you know, they're, they're now, it's codified. Digital public goods is one of the most important things out there. And if we have more and more of this, where mm -hmm. we're, we're saying that this is actually going to help us achieve our goals in whether it be the SDGs, whether it be strategy 2030, like our work, whatever that is as communities, we do need open to make that happen. And it's not a discussion anymore. It's now part of the narrative, right? That, and so the more that we collaborate on that, the better I think that's going to be. And that makes me excited, especially with GIGA, which is focusing on making sure that schools have internet so that we actually are not just talking about open for people who live in Geneva or Northern Canada, but open for every small community around the world that their school has internet. And that has an open standard. And so that's exciting. So what, what does that mean if a school has internet and has open, right? What, what does that mean for communities that they have open? It's, it's so much potential there for what change we can have. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that is a tremendous note for us to end on then. Um, I'm really, the, the digital public goods that you mentioned, I uh, will have a link on the registry there. I mean, there's a lot of folks and friends in our space who have participated in that. And yeah, yeah I mean, I think you're both right. Despite my glass half emptyism, the the trend there seems very real, and I'm glad that you two were able to share that together today. So thank you both very much, and uh, thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, thank you. I can't wait to see what you two are doing next. So thanks. Thank you. Well, nice to meet you, Monica, and let's uh, keep in touch with all of this. I look forward to learning. Same more. here. Looking forward to connecting more. <laughs>